Hello and welcome to the Club Chimera podcast. My name is Jamie Club, and my intention with these shows is to discuss various issues in the world of martial arts and self-protection that have inspired my teaching, training and writing. If you're interested in the material I cover, please check out the show notes at the end of this program and also my website, clubchimera.com. Today's episode is entitled The Aftermath, Part 2, Curse of the Black Dog. If you haven't listened to the first part, you might want to check out Episode 4 of this podcast series. Suffice to say, the subject we're focusing on concerns the post-fight. Having looked at the issue of maintaining awareness for new hazards and threats following the initial dangerous incident, we now look at the resulting impact a traumatic event might cause. I make no pretensions towards psychology or psychiatry, but, as with the law and self-defence, I think it's important that we address how conflict mentally affects us. Many a strong warrior has suffered the consequences of not being prepared for the fallout of a physical fight. I hope you enjoy the show. Picture the scene. The green countryside. Rolling hills. A footpath cuts across endless fields. A man begins his long trek home by foot. He's been working late and the sky is already darkening. Such a journey would usually be pleasant. The quietness of the countryside and the cool, gentle breeze that regularly accompanies him helps to clear his head. This is his time. Yet tonight he feels uneasy. Tonight, that breeze is decidedly chilly. It has a mean, penetrating feel. He senses something. A presence. The sound of soft, padding footsteps catches his ear through the stillness. The man has lived long enough in this part of the world to know that he needs to keep on moving. He looks straight ahead and quickens his pace. The footsteps soon joined by another sound, a heavy, rasping pant. This additional noise confirms his fears. Thoughts of his earthly existence, the material world of his work, and even his warm comforts at home suddenly become distant concerns. He feels the approach, but he dares not look. He must not look. The presence is almost by his side. He cannot run for fear that it will easily outrun him and then appear in front of him. What is this terror? Something that lurks in the minds of all his fellow countrymen. The man knows that what is stalking him now is the harbinger of death should it appear before him. He also knows that it will stalk him and test his resolve to the extremes of his mortal ability. For this is the very hellhound itself, the Black Dog. Okay, enough of the melodrama. The term Black Dog has become a metaphor for depression ever since Winston Churchill used it to describe his own dark moods. Given the events of World War II and some of the decisions the famously emotional Churchill made, it's a small wonder that so many thoughts weighed heavy on his mind. Churchill was also notoriously ambitious and driven, often impulsive and reckless. Being a natural writer and historian, he had a predisposition to look back and re-examine past events. These are all contributory factors that could create the ideal conditions to make anyone vulnerable to the attention of the black dog. Jeff Thompson, one of my main influences in self-protection and martial arts training, referred to the black dog several times. The term has now become something more specific within the martial arts community, thanks to his own particular usage. In this instance, the metaphor is used to describe the way one looks back on a conflict with regret, driven by the feeling that one should have acted differently. As is often the theme in Jeff's work, this recrimination is viewed as another manifestation of fear. The fear connection is of particular interest to me as it brings us back to the superstitious belief in the spectral black dog of folklore. No one really knows how this ghostly hellhound made its way across and all over the British Isles in some form or other, but some connect it to Egyptian and Greek mythology. 
I'm not convinced, but it is intriguing to note that the Egyptians had their jackal-headed protector of the dead, Anubis, and the Greeks had their multi-headed guard dog, Cerberus. Some historians connect the origin of the hellhounds with the peculiar accounts given by British clergy about the various raids of Scandinavian invaders. These hordes of warriors that swept across Britain were sometimes described in the same way one might describe packs of wolves or dogs. Others say the legend goes back further and is part of Saxon legend, and they connect to the black dog, with the legend of the werewolf. Black dogs vary in size and ability to the point that these stories might be describing sightings of virtually any large animal. Urban legend folklorists see the mysterious big cat sightings on British moorland as a modern manifestation of the legend. Although these sightings are generally considered to be 20th and 21st century urban legends, there are Victorian precedents. For example, such moors became the location of Arthur Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes novel, The Hound of the Baskervilles. Whatever the source of the legend, every part of Britain has their own version of the black dog, from the Scottish Highlands down to the most southern shore of England, across into Wales and even the British Islands of Jersey and the Isle of Man. They go by a variety of names according to their regions, such as Padford, Trash, Shuck, Hooter, Scarf, Guytrack, Barcast, Harryjack, Muckleback, Scryker, Gallytrot, and many more. The southwest coast, particularly Devon, appears to have black dog sighting stories in virtually every churchyard. There are even vivid accounts of the black dog marauding through congregations and killing people. For the most part, however, the supernatural entity does not make contact. It just appears with glowing red eyes. The sighting prophesizes death for the person or a member of their family. What I found of particular interest is that the word trash, sometimes used to describe black dogs in the Lancashire region, is also circus slang for fear. Growing up around a lot of old circus families, I understood that when someone was trashed, it meant they were scared of something. How much depression and fear are connected is perhaps a discussion for another day, and for someone better qualified than me. However, for the sake of argument, we can put it that following a traumatic incident, we often regularly torture ourselves with what we should have done. We fear that fear itself has prevented us from acting in a better way, and see it as a reflection of our own true character, perhaps our very soul or true personality. This then leads to a sense of depression, maybe sadness at our failure, and often a huge dose of self-pity. As this is a podcast that often focuses on self-protection, we can specifically look at the black dog as a persistent inner taunt that one failed to act in the right way. The hellhound dogs us. Often the failure to act can be exemplified by being confronted by an aggressive and obnoxious individual who hurls a load of verbal abuse our way, and we did this to return the tirade. The individual challenged us in some way, either simply by name-calling or actually throwing down the metaphorical gauntlet to physically fight them. At one end of the scale, there are those many moments where we have walked away from an incident wishing we had said something more effective, poignant or witty. At the other end of the scale, we feel vulnerable and fear that we're a coward at heart. Fear is often what drives many new students to self-protection and martial arts classes. Some individuals have an innate insecurity that they have become detached from their primitive survivalist ancestors. It's only when they are faced with potential physical conflicts that these individuals begin questioning their abilities. The aftermath of incidents involving physical confrontation can be immediately painful and they can also last a lifetime. Many of my clients have been those seeking to address their fears after they've been involved in potentially physical or actual physical confrontation. Training in a system of combat seems like a logical, productive and proactive solution to this problem. For many people, it forms part of their therapy. For others, they're seeking a solution or a remedy for a perceived weakness. After all, many martial arts clubs offer this exact service in their advertising, often in quite a provocative fashion. For more on this, see the essay, The Pornography of Reality-Based Self-Defense, in my ebook, Wrong Fu. The act of training in combat or any form of physical exercise has its obvious benefits. 
For example, there's an engaging bliss in being able to focus entirely on shifting free weights. As Henry Rollins once famously said in his profound and reflective article, The Iron and the Soul, the iron never lies. Unsurprisingly, actual combative training also provides a great release. For me, when it comes to dealing with a stressful day of some description, it's either the heavy bag or good sparring partners that help me the most. What is usually happening here is that the individual is dealing with a sympathetic nervous system, which is when a person is still in the physiological state of fight, flight or freeze. They still are experiencing the effects of adrenaline in their system. If this isn't dealt with, then sleep deprivation, amongst other problems, is likely to follow. Dave Grossman noted in his book on combat that law enforcement officers often suffered bad sleep after being engaged in a dangerous incident, whereas soldiers on active duty rarely had this problem. The reason for this is that police incidents were usually short affairs, but the violent aspect was over in a relatively short amount of time, leaving them with a huge amount of hormonal build-up with nowhere to go. By comparison, soldiers were often involved in long and sustained combative situations where they completely expended their natural stimulants. Training is a good means to burn off residual adrenaline, but it should be productive and under your control. There is a distinct difference between turning your emotional breakdown into a means to develop your art and just raw catharsis. The latter is a pseudo-therapeutic practice that essentially reinforces lashing out during times of stress. You'll certainly feel better because the body will give you a rush of endorphins, but the act won't really help anything other than possibly make you a more physically volatile person. The quacks can dress it up whatever way they want and give you a nice big fat bill for buying one of their official stress pads, but hitting things mindlessly when you're worked up about something is really just surrendering to the sport toddler in us all. Even channeling your emotional and hormonal release into your art should not be overestimated as a bona fide cure. If the panacea to all forms of stress and depression was to work harder, then all great artists would be the happiest people alive. We know this is far from the truth. Training can help, distracting activities can help, and feeling that your inner turmoil is fueling something worthwhile might provide a degree of consolation, but these are often just complementary remedies. At best, they provide short-term solutions with short-term benefits. At worst, they stop us from addressing corrosive and mentally damaging problems that require serious attention as we become stuck in a self-isolating cycle. Once one's adrenaline dump has been burned off, we will enter the parasympathetic stage, where our body just wants to recover. However, our downtime can very easily become the beginning of a downward spiral. The onset of tiredness, sometimes confused with lethargy, allows the fearful hellhound of depression to begin his sinister panting and growling. Here, when we sit down with our thoughts and replay a traumatic incident in our heads, the voice of condemnation starts talking. The 20th century saw the real problems with post-traumatic stress disorder brought to light. Early on, it was called shell shock, associated with the mass and constant shelling experienced by World War I soldiers. Knowledge of the actual psychological condition was virtually unknown during the 1910s, when advanced technology and outmoded military customs met on the battlefield with devastating results. The sacrifice and courage that had been celebrated with the story of the charge of the Light Brigade was reduced to a sickening parody during the Battle of the Frontiers. Each mounted cavalry charge was totally obliterated by heavy machine gun fire. The troops on the ground faced more sustained horrors. The Battle of Verdun is often described as a hellish meat grinder resulting in well over 700,000 deaths in 303 days. The Battle of the Somme saw the greatest number of casualties ever experienced in the history of the British Army, with over 57,000 of their soldiers killed in battle on the first day. 
despite resulting in a decisive early victory for their side against the opposing Central Powers. Not only were soldiers exposed to mass human destruction via the use of mechanised weaponry, but they also experienced a wave of other new and horrifying advances in warfare, such as exposure to mustard gas. Arthur von Wolfrath famously summed up this abrupt change in military attitude with his comment, If war was once a chivalrous duel, it's now a dastardly slaughter. For the soldiers who fought in the First World War, if these horrors weren't happening to them, they were happening to their friends and colleagues on a regular basis. Those who weren't slaughtered outright or returned home with terrible injuries often lived the torturous existence of surviving in a rat-infested, disease-ridden trench as they fought a nerve-wracking war of attrition with the enemy. The physical cost of this devastating conflict was immense. However, according to On Combat, the psychological impact was even greater. The great writer, art collector and socialite of modernism, Gertrude Stein, aptly named those that came of this age through the Great War as the lost generation for good reason. Many soldiers were shot for what was seen as cowardice back then, but today their behaviour would more likely be attributed to the aforementioned post-traumatic stress disorder. Soldiers, veterans and new bloods alike had faced a conflict they'd all been ill-prepared to handle. The technology of the early 20th century had not only advanced the weaponry of war, it provided soldiers with the ability to fight on into and through the night. With virtually every great war sold on the same wishful thinking and wrongful assumption it would be over very quickly, the generals of the war saw little problem in the idea of keeping the pressure up when their 19th century predecessors would have been forced to call it a day as the sun went down. Electrical lighting at their disposal allowed for the fight to continue. This resulted in many unforeseen problems. Over the thousands of years that humans have waged wars without the use of electricity, not only has the weary soldier had time to recharge himself and get a good sleep, he's also had the opportunity to share his experiences with his comrades in arms. Never consciously realising what they were doing, groups of warriors could sit down together and swap stories about the day's events. Regrets, worries and misgivings about their actions could be shared more readily. Perhaps they would hear back from fellow soldiers about similar experiences. They would hear words of encouragement, words of advice, and maybe they would just be listened to as they unloaded their thoughts. I'm not trying to present some idyllic representation of bygone years where all warriors were touchy-feely counsellors, but humans are a social species, and they've evolved through their use of language. They have always enjoyed telling and listening to stories amongst like-minded people. Debriefing has always occurred. It's just that, for most of human history, it's been such a firm part of natural social evolution that no one thought to categorise it as an important recovery and maintenance tool. Just as warfare's advances in technology lacked mental adaption, civilian life saw a disconnect with local communities. Individuals, particularly those living in urban territories, became more isolated. Work life became more hectic, making it harder for people to balance their personal lives as everything seemed to be moving at a faster pace. Blame whatever part of the modern age you like, industrialisation, consumerism, materialism or whatever, somewhere in the 20th century the role of the village elder was erased. It's been somewhat cosmetically replaced by the feel-good industry which is really something different altogether. What a person suffering from depression needs is support. What a person suffering from any sort of post-fight situation might need is a trusted listening ear and not a quick-fix solution. The evidence shows that depression is far from a simple beast to handle. Don't expect a session down the gym, no matter how immediately satisfying, to be the best way to exercise your demonic black dog. Humans are a social species. Talking through an incident with trusted friends, colleagues or even a compassionate stranger has often proven to be one of the most effective ways to deal with depression. You will note that I said deal with and not solve or cure. When the black dog appears after a violent or potentially violent confrontation, barking and growling in your ear with words about what you should have done, one of the best ways to deal with him is to anticipate his presence. 
Any conflict will have an aftermath of sorts. Some of it will be physiological, adrenal residue from your sympathetic nervous system or the various shutting down feelings created by your parasympathetic nervous system. You might feel emotional, you might shake or feel vomitous, like shutting down and mysteriously soporific. However, most of it will be psychological and this will last the longest, possibly a lifetime. Expecting and understanding it as part of your training is the first step to reduce its effect. The next step is to be aware of when it happens and deal with it in a productive fashion. Make peace with it. The past is the past, if you like. If you cannot find the right person to discuss it with, seek out that person. If close friends and family cannot help, seek out a support group. Finally, do your best to accept it the same way as you accept any scar in your life knowing that you still have a life worth living. The superstition of the black dog warned against facing down this spectral monster. However, maybe this was his power all along. The stories tell of people fleeing the hellhound or freezing and being consumed by him. We have the strength of reason on our side and are armed with a sense of self-awareness. Whatever you did, you survived. From a self-protection perspective, that's a win. Thanks again everyone for listening and promoting the show. Following up on last week's question, the music for the Aftermath episode is Edvard Grieg's In the Hall of the Mountain King from Henrik Ibsen's play Peer Gint. It's an extremely well-known and recognisable piece in pop culture. It caught my attention when it was used in Fritz Lang's talkie masterpiece of 1931, M. In the film, the serial killer is regularly shown whistling Grieg's tune. The killer, played by the great Peter Laurie, was based on Peter Curtin, who we discussed in the previous show. A bit of news, I'm teaching a seminar in Worcester, UK, for Cajun Rue on Sunday the 23rd of September this year. The first half of the day will be my children's self-protection programme, and the second half will cover my Club Chimera martial arts cross-training methods, sometimes known as Vagabond Warriors. The link is in the show notes of this podcast. If you haven't already, please share these shows on social media, and leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, or wherever you subscribe. This really helps me. Thank you very much. To keep up to date on all my material, please like and follow the Facebook, Google and Twitter pages. I'm also going to be creating some new work for the YouTube channel. Don't forget to subscribe there too. However, if you would really like to show your support, please buy the new ebook Wrong Foo, which is currently available on Amazon. This is the prequel to my multi-volume series, Bullshit Sue and the Fight to Make Martial Arts Work. Whilst we're on the subject of critical thinking, next episode will focus on martial arts elitism. Join me when I choose another canine symbol in the Order of St. Guinea Thank you for listening. <laughs>